Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is uh, Wednesday, and it's time for more of the Sunburn series. And, of course, I wear SPF 2 million. That's the protection <laughs> I need. But uh, it's always a de- delight to have Dr. Peter Kapsner here as we pick a topic and discuss this summer. And our guest, our special guest today is Dr. David Clark, who's been not only a guest for the prayer series, but also for the Salvation Series. So he is, uh, you know, he's hitting big. He is hitting big, yeah, very big, hitting for the cycle. <laughs> he, I would say <laughs> minimum four at bats, and yeah, indeed, yeah. And I've we been around for a long time, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, you are a professor of theology at Bethel, among other things, an author and a, a amazing uh, man of faith, and a guy that we like having on. So, is that enough introduction, or do you want more? <laughs> Well, if my mother were here, she'd definitely uh, run down a whole bunch of more other things. But I think, you know, this is probably good for our purposes. Just throw out one bone that your mom would want to (laughs) hear. Well, let's see. Um, You know, I love to play golf and I love to swim on the beach and build houses. So those are other things I do with my spare time. Peter likes to play golf as well. And he's got a floating putter because after he misses (laughs) and throws it into the water, he needs to be able to find it. It is among the most useful apparatus I've ever owned, for sure. I can just chuck it without even a care anymore. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, David, we want to talk today and we want to spend this time uh, chatting about how we uh, are most effective uh, in the world in which we live when it comes to sharing our faith and having conversations with people who don't believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. And it's been, of course, you look at evangelism over the last 50 years and the things that worked 25, 30 years ago uh, isn't quite as relevant today, although the message is the same. I would totally agree with that. And uh, while I think that we find new ways of expressing the message, the basic core, the heartbeat of the gospel that's something that has been established for uh, the, since the time of Christ, uh, deep in biblical truth, obviously. So we're just not going to mess with that. We can't mess with that. Um, the implications of it for our lives are going to be different as uh, we face different situations. Um, you know, 200 years ago, uh, people didn't have to deal with things like the Internet. We deal with the Internet. What, is that? what does the gospel say about the Internet? Well, 200 years ago, nobody knew what that was all about. But today we have to answer that question. So, you know, applications change, but no, the core of the gospel, it is what it is. Do we, do we seem to catalog people quicker than usual? Uh, or are we reductionistic? Or what, what another way of putting it is we, we look for ways to write people off quickly instead yeah. of listen. Yeah, I, I really think that that is true. And, of course, this is, you know, this is true of, of human beings generally. I mean, when we think about people of, a, of groups, another group, for instance, um, you know, we, we want to get an idea of who they are, where they're coming from, what they're like before we start the conversation. So, you know, if I'm going to have a meeting and I know that this person is from a German background, you know, there, there may be some things that I think I know about Germans generally, um, and so I'll sort of be aware of that as I as I enter the conversation. Uh, human beings do that, you know, or let's say we go to a restaurant and there's a person there with a, uh, you know, a uniform on and they have a name tag. 
well, we're expecting that that person is part of the wait staff, not another guest. I mean, we make assumptions about each other based on, on, on what we see, and that's okay at a, at a certain level. Um, at another level, it, it starts to become stereotyping. It gets us into trouble. So, you know, human beings do look at others, make judgments quickly, and I think in our own time, that basic human tendency has only been exacerbated, made worse by, for example, the rise of Twitter, where you've got to say what you've got to say in 140 characters, and it's really hard to say anything really intelligent in that amount of space. So we write people off rather than really listening and engaging in a deep way. Interesting point you made about name tags in restaurants, because uh, Peter, when he's on the sidewalk in front of restaurants, people often ask him to go get their car. Yeah. So <laughs> he knows all about that. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. a certain look, David. It's not even the requisite uniform. It's just, it's just, it's just, well, it's just the, the other thing is you, you don't want to wear a blue shirt to Menards where people ask you where the shoes are. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, you tapped me in the German heritage, so I'm wondering how, how you would stereotype me too, David. But I, I think uh, in terms of um, differences with people, there. I'm curious about how far that extends, because I know that you've written books on like uh, apologetics and, and how to talk about our faith with other people. And there's differences that are big and differences that are small. Are, are, is there some guidelines in terms of I should be having conversations with these people or is it just sort of carte blanche? You, you can talk with anybody, really. Right. Well, you know, there are some people in the world who are uh, fundamentally uh, out for evil. Their, their intention is evil. Um, and uh, for those who are vulnerable, especially, you know, I think that it's wisest to, to sort of say, we're not going to talk to those people. So if I've got an 11 year old son, you know, I'm not going to send him up against R- Richard Dawkins and say, look, go witness to Richard, uh, <laughs> you know, because my responsibility as a parent here is to protect someone who is more vulnerable. Uh, and so, you know, we, we just wouldn't do that. Uh, I, as an adult, you know, having spent time thinking and praying and preparing, uh, gained experience in talking with people, I would definitely talk with Richard Dawkins. And uh, I would respect him as another person, respect his point of view. I'm sure he has some reasons for his point of view. But I'd also say, look, I'm a human being. I demand respect from him. And I would express the, the reasons why I have faith as well. So I think outside of protecting uh, those of us, uh, those in our community who are vulnerable in some way, particularly young people. But uh, beyond that, I think, yeah, we should be talking to people of all stripes and all perspectives and all political identities. David, it seems like a lot of people have, uh, they fear the gotcha moments where they don't want to be in a conversation when they start it, where they say something and the person turns around and says, oh, that's just crazy. Uh, right. Or they say, oh, you're one of those people. Well, then I I don't want to have any more discussion with you. Mm -hmm. We seem to cherish these moments of dialogue. We don't want to ruin it too fast. I I, I agree with that. You know, one thing that's true psychologically about the human person and most human beings, the vast majority, again, there may be a few exceptions of people who have real evil intent, but the vast majority of people uh, are just as sort of insecure about having conversations uh, with people they don't know well as anybody else would be. So I'm talking about people who are, don't have faith are also somewhat afraid of a gotcha moment, uh, even as a Christian might be afraid of such a moment or anxious about such a moment. And so it just helps me to know that, you know, everybody has their insecurities and uh, we should just enter into that without, you know, really worrying about it too much. I mean, it's a little bit uh, like what I tell my kids when we go 
uh, you know, going to the lake. Well, there's snapping turtles. Okay, the snapping turtle is more afraid of you than you are of it. Okay, so don't worry about the snapping turtle. I think that's the mentality that mm. uh, that I would want to have with regard to the vast majority of people. David, I think it'd be useful uh, a little bit further into our time here to talk some about the specific topics like sexuality and politics and some of these differences. But just stepping back for a minute, well, you talked about the idea of wanting to maintain the relationship. Are you finding it a bit different in 2021 than maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago that as soon as it comes out that you're a Christian, is there a certain kind of response that you notice that's different in 2021 versus 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, I think there are uh, definitely changes uh, initially. That is to say, uh, there are, is a larger number of people in our society who would see the, the concept of a Christian um, as a negative category, as a category, oh, you're one of those people, uh, for instance, by comparison to the 60s or 70s or 80s. Um, and at the same time, you know, most of the time, I think we need to understand that for most people, that's just kind of an initial sort of response. And really, your own personal behavior is going to override whatever presuppositions or prejudices they have for the most part. Again, let's exclude that that band of you know really, really aggressive, evil people who are on the edge there. But I would say the vast majority of people might have an initial thought, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, uh, but if you demonstrate by your character, by your generosity, by your willingness to listen to the other, by your courage – uh, by your interest and love in them, those personal behaviors are over going to ride their group prejudice very quickly in a conversation. Do you Can you identify where that, ooh, you're a Christian might come from these days? And I, I say that only because sometimes it's helpful to enter into the mentality of other people as we're starting to cross some of these divides in our conversation. Where, where does that kind of, oh, you're a Christian, where might that be coming from these days? Yeah. Well, I I do think that uh, there are many sources of information about uh, people in other groups that um, those who are not Christians are picking up. Um, they watch news media of various sorts. They watch YouTube videos of various sorts. Um, you know, you can even get uh, a character um, on a cartoon show like Homer Simpson. Um, you know, Flanders is not portrayed in a particularly positive way. Uh, so, you know, at least I don't identify with him all that well. Uh, not that I watch that show very much. I certainly don't. But, um, you know, I think there are just lots of different sources from which uh, negative stereotypes about biblical Christians come, come through. And I think part of that is that there are some, uh, you know, biblical Christians or Christians who are somewhat trying to be True to the faith, true and faithful to the scripture, who really are um, aggressive or uh, sort of wrong-headed in their approach uh, toward the culture, who are very negative toward the culture, uh, who are combative in how they approach the culture. Uh, now, I think the news media likes to glom onto those those exceptional stories, you know, and to highlight the fact that you've got the uh, these Christians who are doing evil things or doing unwise things in the name of Christ. And I think the other thing to really to be honest about is that we've had a number of um, scandals in the church. I think, obviously, we all know about the Catholic Church and the, and the uh, scandals of sexuality there. And all those things color people's perspective. There's just no two ways about that. So when we come into a conversation, we can expect that there might be some negativity in terms of stereotyping on the other side. 
but also we should have confidence that as we live a loving, courageous, open uh, conversation and, and character in, in conversation with others, uh, that that personal behavior is going to overcome the prejudices on the other side. Dr. David Clark is our guest for the Sunburn series. Peter Capster and I are so glad to be talking to David. And we're talking about uh, conversations with people who believe differently than us. We'll be right back with lots more. Welcome back to the Summer Sunburned series. Gives you lots of vitamin D, but also wear a hat that covers your ears, right, Peter? Oh, Otherwise, for, you fry your ears. Uh, uh, for for sure. I yeah. made the, the critical error of mowing the lawn the other day without <laughs> your 2,000 SVC, whatever, sunblock yes, it is. Two million. Two million, that's yeah. what it is, yeah. yeah. And my head is still not thanking me. Yeah. The shower is too hot. My dermatologist <laughs> says, basically in the summer, do not leave your house. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's super fair. It's, yeah, it's super fair. It's super fair. Yeah. We're talking today to Dr. Uh, David Clark. We're talking about just relating to people that we're coming in contact with and conversations with people who believe differently. And Peter, I think you had a great uh, way to lead into this segment. Yeah, we're taking it into some specific ex- examples now, David. I was thinking about some of the religious pluralism that we have, meaning that there's lots of different religions sort of living in close proximity to each other these days. And that maybe is a little bit different than 30 years ago. And I was thinking about a time when I was living in Scotland and the little Mediterranean shop that I would go to have uh, lunch each day. At one point, he was celebrating Ramadan and he was asking me to taste the soup for him because he couldn't taste it himself. And and we struck up a bit of a friendship over that. And I guess I'm curious what you would say. Was I doing the wrong thing in striking up a, a friendship with somebody of an entirely different faith that we would find inconsistent with Christianity? Right. Well, you know, if you're following the example of Jesus who had lunch uh, with all sorts of people, I'm not sure what kind of soup he was tasting, you know, when he went to Zacchaeus's house. But (laughs) um, I'm sure that uh, he was engaging in conversation uh, with people, you know, who were not following the way. And so I think you're in good company there. Is there something that... um can you go beyond just doing that kind of a friendship to the, you can't actually enter into like fellowship somehow with somebody from a different faith. Is there, is there some sort of evangelistic responsibility or is simply just being friends and shining God's light in that, in that situation enough? Yeah, I think we have an evangelistic responsibility and the question is how does one fulfill that? And I think it should be a whole person, a whole bodied, a full bodied kind of, uh, fulfillment of that responsibility. You know, there's some people who have this kind of mentality that I I can't allow myself to be soiled by contact with people who aren't fully committed to everything I'm committed to. And, uh, you know, somehow I might get, I I might get dirty if I hung out with uh, people who have a different moral perspective on something. And that's almost a dependent, almost assumes that I am somehow sinless and that if I could just touch another person, uh, you know, I could be sinful. 
Uh, and again, the, the words of Jesus on this, you know, what is it that makes a man sinful? It's what comes out of what's inside you that makes you sinful. In other words, we're all sinners to the core. So I'm not in any danger of becoming more sinful just because I have a conversation with a person who doesn't believe what I believe. I mean, this, this is directly from the teachings of Jesus. Uh, so I really think that we do have this evangelistic responsibility, but the notion that of some of those who are too afraid or so afraid of getting sullied that the thing to do is kind of stand at a distance and simply declare the word of God, to proclaim it, to sort of just preach it at people, uh, you have to be aware that that does more harm than good. People are just sort of turned off by that kind of behavior. I really believe that we have to live our lives in such a way that we earn the right to truth. So our deeds of mercy and our relationships of love build a bridge of relationship across which the truck carrying biblical truth can safely cross. But if you don't build that bridge first, the truck crashes into the river. Hmm. I love that. Uh, Do you have any thoughts related to the idea of he who is within you is greater than he who is within this world. And, and is that relevant at all for entering into conversations with, with people that are non-believers? Because they do think there's a fear that you're going to become sullied or stained or, or hit by the sin itself and stuff. What, do you have any thoughts on what that passage means and if it relates to this? Absolutely, I do. And I think there are two ways to think about this. Let's go back to the parenting analogy. So one thing that I try to do as a parent is to keep my child safe from the dangers out there. The other, try, the other thing I try to do is I try to make, help my child grow strong to handle the dangers out there. And I think in our society, this is a whole other topic of parenting, but we focus very, 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 very much on let's keep people safe. And we don't say anything about helping people be strong and courageous. But how many times in Scripture does it say, be strong and courageous? I mean, go back to Joshua, for Pete's sake, and let's think of all the places where it says, do not be afraid. I mean, there are hundreds. I think somebody told me there are 365 of those, one for every day of the year. Don't be afraid. So I, I think that this idea of greater is he that is in you speaks to the necessity of not just protecting ourselves from what is dangerous, although that's true if you're a vulnerable child, but also preparing yourself with strength uh, to handle the things that are that are difficult and dangerous, and uh, that preparation idea, I think, you know, involves the spiritual disciplines, but it also involves, you know, thinking and studying and learning and understanding, uh, as well as just having a confidence in the truth of God. I think it's a cr- it's a crazy thing that Christians are very insistent about the absolute truth of the Scripture and the absolute truth of the gospel, but in conversation. People don't seem to have much confidence in the truth. My goodness, if it's really, really true, you know that you have the truth on your side. You know, you shouldn't panic. You should be courageous. And the Lord is with you. So, you know, it's that whole question of preparing for strength rather than being obsessed with with protecting against danger. That is a mentality shift that I think is uh, important as we, we think about evangelism. Mm, since I guess I'm hitting for the cycle now, David, four in a row here on this one. One more question. Um, He's hogging all the questions. I totally am. I, <laughs> and so, yeah, I continue to be at the plate, but I'm wondering if, uh, if there's any merit to educating yourself then in another person's faith. Like, let's say you are going to become friends with the person of the Muslim faith. Is there danger in that? Is there reason to prepare yourself? What, what would you say about that? Yeah, no, I, I think that understanding uh, the other person's perspective 
is is very important and it's essential actually. Um, so, you know, I think anytime you have a dis- danger or a risk or something that's uh, potentially threatening, uh, to understand what that is, uh, to to really get it nailed down precisely is is crucial. I mean, let's think of a physical example here. Um, you know, I'm right now I'm looking out on the lake, uh, and um, you know, people go boating. So if you're going to go out boating, you need to know there there are some risks, right? Well, if you have absolutely no clue what those risks are, and you have absolutely no clue what to do about those risks, you're in much, much greater danger through your own lack of knowledge and understanding and your own negligence than you are if you are fully prepared. So if you're going to take an ocean liner to sea, you've got to have lifeboats, you've got to have you know, navigation, all of the things, trained officers who know how to run the ship and so forth. You have to have all of this in, in preparation. So a conversation with a person who has a different point of view, you know, there is some, perhaps some danger or risk in that. Although I think, too, we should emphasize the fact it can be interesting and exciting to have a relationship with a person like that and to learn and grow through that. So understanding where they're coming from is going to be crucial uh, as you prepare for the for the dialogue. Now, let's suppose I'm entering into a conversation. I, I had no idea where this is where this person is coming from. I'm really a fan of William Isaac's concept of dialogue, where you know he's got a four-step process, and the first step is simply to listen. And so the most risk-free thing to do in a conversation with a person is just to ask questions and to listen and to seek to understand. And not only does that benefit you in terms of gaining an awareness of where this other person is coming from, but it also communicates the relational aspect of saying, I am interested in you. You are important to me. You are made in God's image. You are precious to God. God loves you. You know, you can communicate all that sort of subterranean in a subterranean way by listening for understanding with genuine interest. Uh, and then you move in through other steps until you get to the place where you actually speak. I'm really a fan of that idea of listen mm-hmm. first and speak second. Whenever we talk about listening, it always prompts me to, to, to wonder what was the interesting question you asked to get them to speak, which enables you to listen. Hmm. That's another interesting point. I mean, I'll, here I'll go to First Peter, uh, and, you know, you live a life of hope. You live a life that's so unusual um, that... After a while, people say, there's something going on with that guy. What's going on in your life? And so, you know, they, they begin to ask you questions. Uh, but short of, uh, short of that, I think even in a, a specific conversation, simply expressing interest in the other, expressing affirmation for the other, expressing interest in the other, will instigate the other person to return the favor in the same way. This is human psychology, is that I treat you the way you treat me, you know. So if you treat me with kindness, I have a tendency to respond in kind. Uh, This is mirroring, and human beings do it all the time. Hmm. So if I can treat you with respect, ask good questions, after a while, the person, the natural tendency of most persons will be to return that favor, to treat you with respect, and to ask you questions. All right, we'll take a little break. Dr. David Clark is our guest, and Peter Kapsner and I are talking today about conversations with people who believe differently. We'll be uh, right back with lots more.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. So nice to be back with uh, Peter as we're continuing our summer sunburn series. And our guest is Dr. David Clark. We're talking about having discussions, talking to people that don't necessarily agree with us. And David, right before we went to break, you were talking about an author who I'd never heard of uh, and four points I wanted to learn more about. Oh, right. Uh, William Isaacs is the person that I just referenced briefly there, and he's written a book entitled Dialogue, and uh, it's full of tremendous information. I mean, I think the first thing to understand is just the the value of dialogue in lots of different things. I mean, I think, for example, that uh, a person who uh, learns this skill might be able to take it, for example, to the workplace and find, you know, that problem solving works better when you operate from a perspective of dialogue. Um, rather than, you know, thinking alone like Thoreau out in Walden Pond all by himself uh, with nobody to interrupt. And, you know, it may be kind of arrogant to think that I by myself can imagine and think and understand the universe. And would it be better if I learned a little something from Peter and maybe Peter learned a little something from me, if you know, as we dialogue back and forth? And so when we enter into true dialogue, it actually means that we can – uh, sort of pool the various elements of what we know about the world in such a way that both can be enriching. Now, this doesn't mean we accept the truth of the other religion, but we may learn some things. For instance, if I talk with an atheist and I really listen with an open dialogical heart, uh, I may learn uh, that the way Christians have acted toward him are part of the reason why he's turned off to Jesus. And uh, that might be actually an important thing for me to learn. You know what I mean? Um, It might be hard to learn, but it might be important. Um, So that idea that uh, Isaacs is talking about is really about this sort of working together. And basically his four steps are first to listen and secondly to suspend your own judgment. So in other words, uh, halfway through the first sentence, as Peter is telling me something here, I'm not in the back of my mind gearing up to prove him wrong. I'm just going to say, I don't agree with you here, but I'm just going to lay that aside for a moment, and I'm going to suspend judgment and suspend my own thoughts, and I'm going to try to truly understand what you're saying. Uh, and then he says, after suspending, you, you seek to respect. And, you know, I've found that this is very, very helpful as I'm talking to a person who's different from myself, because my tendency, my tendency is to quickly jump to, okay, here's where you're wrong, one, two, three, four. And I've got subpoints as well, if you really want them. Um, which they usually don't, by the way. Um, but I show respect, you know, by the way I engage. And then the fourth step is to speak your voice. Um, and that you can kind of go in a circle on that. So, you know, if you listen, suspend judgment, so you're not uh, automatically trying to debate them, uh, but opening your mind to what they're saying, even though you don't agree, you're opening to understanding, not agreement. You show respect, and then at that point, you can speak your voice. And, of course, the other person uh, will respond, as I said before, that people tend to respond in kind, which is the great thing about that. David, as you're going through all of those, it occurs to me that this isn't just these aren't just principles for somebody of another faith, but this is husband and wife, this is parent and kids, this is across oh. the board in terms of a way to develop that. Absolutely. So, yeah, I said take it to work, but take it home, too. And uh, I just imagine how a, a difficult conversation with a spouse 
uh, how could that be improved if I start with the idea that, okay, I've got a legitimate point of view here, but there might be this person that I'm married to who also has a legitimate point of view, and maybe I should just suspend judgment for a moment and listen to what he or she is saying and show respect to him or to her. Um, in my case, it would be a her. And uh, as, I, as I suspend judgment uh, and show respect, um, then I have the opportunity to, to speak. What, what ends up happening, I think, is that if you start talking, but I'm criticizing you, then you start talking louder because you're, you're thinking, I not only have to explain myself, but I've got to overcome this, this criticism, right? So, so, Peter, you and I are, are having this conversation, and my initial thing is not to suspend judgment, but rather to start exerting judgment. And then that causes you to up the ante, as it were. Well, then that causes me to up the ante and really get into the criticism. And now we're escalating into World War III, right? Think about how these two models have make a difference uh, in a legitimate difference of perspective between a man, a man and a woman who happen to be married to each other. I sometimes uh, think, David, am I going to be listening to this person or am I going to carry on a parallel monologue? I'm simply going <laughs> to wait for them to stop talking so I can start my talking. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, you know, sometimes you see Saturday Night Live skits that have uh, this kind of going on, and it actually gets hilarious from the outside, but it's kind of tragic from the inside, especially if you're talking about people who are supposed to be working together or living together, um, you know, especially in a marriage. My goodness, that's just uh, kind of a, a marriage killer. I think it's a romance killer. <laughs> you know, when people are on their own track and they're just kind of doing their own thing and off they go into their own direction. Mm-hmm. What about some people's unwillingness to dialogue at all? Um, I've got a couple of strategies I, I use, but I'd love to hear oh, what your take is on that. Right. I, I do think uh, that there are some people who are so incensed, uh, so into the ideology of opposition to what I'm talking about that, you know, it, it really is difficult to overcome them. Now, I don't think that's a majority of people. I think we should just recognize that that's, you know, that's a small number of people. Um, but in that context, uh, I don't think it really makes any sense to move away from uh, what Isaac's saying, which is nevertheless to continue to respect, uh, to listen, uh, to honor what they're saying, to ask questions of clarification and so forth, which in some cases surprises people because uh, you get people in the political world today who all they can do is shout at their opponent. And, um, you know, when you begin to ask honest questions, it kind of throws them off their game. Uh, so at least that's how I would approach it. But I, I'm really curious to know what, what you would do, Bill. And uh, you said you've got a strategy here. Let me, I'd love to add that to my, uh, my quiver of strategies. Well, a couple of things I do is I will say if you have disagreed uh, with God about something, I'd love to hear what it was you didn't agree with God about. Right. Tell, tell me about the God that, that you have rejected. Very if, good. If you're running away from God or you're not agreeing with him, what in particular have you disagreed with? And they'll usually come out swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that, you know, a loving God would and then fill in the blank or, <laughs> you know, whatever uh, the Bible teaches about a particular topic. I don't <laughs> agree with that. <laughs> and if they really don't want to talk or dialogue, I'll sometimes ask them, uh, were your grandparents people of faith? Because usually everybody likes to talk about their grandparents. <laughs> and they'll go, oh, yeah, my, oh, my grandparents, oh, they were so fa- – oh, they went to church every Sunday. 
<laughs> and usually you can kind of pry into their life a little bit by hearing them talk lovingly or in, in, in an admiring way about their beloved grandparents who were usually faithful people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then right. so did that get passed down uh, at all to your parents? And, and then how about you? Yeah. And usually they can try connecting some dots. Sure, sure. Oh, that's that's tremendous. And I will say that, you know, for many people, uh, their movement away from the faith is is uh, rooted in a difficult experience. And so sometimes they will tell you that experience. And I think if uh, somebody in the faith did not live the life of Jesus or live the witness of Jesus before them in a way that they should have, you can acknowledge that. Um, so I remember one atheist uh, with whom I had conversations, and uh, this person went to seminary. His wife, sorry, his sister became very, very ill, eventually passed away. He asked the professor, you know, how do we understand this? This is the problem of evil. Well, I think the problem of evil is a very important problem, and it's one that we should think about and talk about and see Scripture over and understand human wisdom as much as we can to, to, to see what we can learn about how evil happens in our world. This professor, supposedly a professor of theology, said to him, don't ask that question. That's not the kind of question you should be asking, and uh, just completely shut him down. And at that point, he thought, you know what? Christians have nothing to say about the problem of evil. I guess I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. Well, that you know, was a bitter experience and I think a case of professorial malfeasance, really, you know. Um, that is really, really helpful for me to understand that this experience was the turning point in his life. And uh, I was able then to talk about the problem of evil in a much, much better way, um, you know, based on understanding where he had come from. David, in terms of disagreement with people, too, I know that one of the um, more top-of-the-mind things that I think is happening increasingly is in the topic of sexuality and the differences, and especially when it's loved ones that are experiencing differences in their sexuality. I just think about how many parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts are probably experiencing kids in their, their teens and early 20s deciding to embrace a version of sexuality that's inconsistent with, with male-female sexuality. And now we're in a place of deep disagreement um, with loved ones. That, uh, it, What would you suggest just as a starting point in that part of the conversation? I think it is really important to understand uh, that if a person's view of some issue, moral issue, is driven by the behavior of a person that they cherish, uh, that that is going to be impactful in their thinking, more impactful in their thinking probably than evidence, you know, than logic, than giving a biblical argument and explaining what the scripture is teaching in that point, in that section, in that uh, area. And so just to be aware that when people are driven by uh, uh, their relationships with people that they love, that that emotional impact is going to be very, very strong for them. And at the same time, I think, um, you know, for many people in that situation, uh, their experience also involves a certain amount of pain uh, because they have watched a young person do something that moves them away from what they think is true. And so you need to be empathetic with that and to enter into that and and acknowledge the pain. And um, I also think that when you've got a, a person who is 
just emotionally all tied up in uh, this situation that uh, that there is a right time to talk about these things and a not so right time to talk about these things and I would just be real sure that I had permission uh, to to talk about a biblical perspective on some subject um, if you're having a conversation about biblical truth with a person who still has an open wound and is still bleeding because of the pain um, that the first thing to do would be to care for that wound um, and, and not to try to drive home the logic uh, in a moment when that person is vulnerable and, and in a great deal of uh, pain over what they've experienced. Um, so I, I want to be respectful enough to say, honestly, I believe the Bible has a different point of view here. I would love to share that with you sometime. Would you be open to that? And um, they'll tell you, you know what, frankly, right now, I'm just not open to that because my, I'm just bleeding. Well, okay, then you don't drive it home right at that moment. But as they give you permission to speak into their lives, um, you know, at that point, I think, then you can uh, bring to bear uh, good reason from the Scripture. All right, we'll take a little break. Dr. David Clark is our guest. Uh, Peter Kapsner and I are continuing our Summer Sunburned series, talking about Oh, anything and everything. But today we're talking about uh, people who believe differently than us and how to better have conversations with them. Take a short break and be right back. We're back with Dr. David Clark. Peter Kapsner and I are just so enjoying our Summer Sunburn series. And today we're talking about having conversations with people who uh, believe differently. And Peter, uh, you at the break were, was saying something and asking me a question. And I thought, we better ask that question to David. That seems like the right person you're not, to ask. you're not going to get good answer from me. <laughs> me neither. I'm, I'm tapped out. So, yeah, David, following up on what you're saying, just in this context of sexuality, I think there's the people are probably pretty familiar with people saying, hey, if you really loved me, you would accept me. Or if you really loved me, you would agree with me. And, and how do we navigate that part of the conversation and specifically around sexuality? Yeah, I, I think this is uh, a tricky thing for sure, because uh, people have this idea that if uh, if I love you, that means I approve of anything and everything you do. And um, I think that what we need to understand theologically, and this is where I think the, the whole contemporary thing on sexuality goes, goes uh, in a, into a, the wrong direction, but the, what the Scripture has to say is that I was created beautifully and wonderfully in the image of God, but also there is much within the human heart uh, that is sinful and deceitful. And... So if something comes welling up from within me, a desire, a thought, a feeling, whatever, um, the, the contemporary assumption is, oh, it's coming from within me. It must be who I am. It must be, must be my identity. It must be pure and good. And I will be psychologically damaged if I don't fulfill whatever comes up from within me. 
But the biblical answer to that is completely different, which is that, as, as we said before, we quoted Jesus, out of the heart comes all these negative things, right? And so the heart is deceitful above all things. And consequently, the basic assumption that if some desire, some feeling, some whatever comes welling up from within, it must be pure and good, and I will be psychologically damaged if I don't live that out. That's one worldview. Another whole perspective is the biblical one. I think we have to go back to that fundamental premise. Uh, Do we assume that everything coming from within is righteous and good and wholesome and key to our happiness? Or are there things that come up from within that actually will lead uh, to pain? And I think you could give some very simple analogies here, but there's something that comes welling up from within me which says, I would love to eat ice cream all the time. I'd love to have a diet that has nothing but mint chip ice cream. (laughs) And I'd love to eat bonbons at all times and just eat sugar all the time. And there's actually some stuff going on inside my brain that attach, that is attached to that and urges me to do that and says that if I do that, that's going to lead to happiness and fulfillment. And the reality is we all know that it doesn't lead to happiness and fulfillment. It leads to disease. It leads to inflammation all through your body. It leads to, you know, overweight. Um, and so that's a basic, phys- just a simple physical example that says, that which comes up from within my heart as a desire may not necessarily be good, and I need to think about this at a higher level with the Spirit of God in order to know which of the desires are God-honoring and which of those are, are going to be destructive. That is a fundamental theological point at which contemporary views of sexuality are missing the boat. And do you, because uh, I, I agree, David, I think to the extent that we can actually, it, it's similar to the religious pluralism conversation that we need to educa- educate ourselves as believers about that very conversation. Is there a sense in which if the person you're talking to, though, is not really interested in having that part of the conversation, that there almost has to just be a sort of this pause and, and almost let that relationship fray a little bit, hoping that you have another time later to come back to some of this stuff? Yeah, I think that um, there's a way of sharing a perspective uh, that says, this is just my perspective, this is what I believe to be true in Scripture, and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to share this with you, versus I'm going to tell you what to do because I'm in charge of your life, and I'm going to te- preach this to you and proclaim this to you, and you are going to be judged if you don't do it. I mean, there are sort of two different ways of doing that. And I think if you use William Isaac's approach where you begin first with listening and suspending and respecting and then voicing, you know, I think the other person is going to be um, able to handle uh, a difference of, op- of opinion as long as they don't have this sense that you're trying to pin them to the wall with your point of view. I mean, people actually enjoy having conversations that are very different from, from their own as long as they don't feel like they're being pressured by that conversation. And this is where the listening and respecting sort of puts the other person at ease. Um, And uh, you can share it, but how you share it makes all the difference in the world. And actually what I found is that if you share these things well, in the first initial conversation, uh, a person will will say, well, that's interesting. That's your point of view, and, and this is my point of view. And you say, well, I'm interested. Please tell me. So you've you've still planted the seed there, and then people do come back around if what you have shared makes good sense, you know, 
people do come back around and say, hmm, well, maybe that actually is truer than I thought, and they can begin to change their point of view. The Holy Spirit can use the seed you plant uh, to change their perspectives. David, is it safe to say that uh, believers should always play the long game with everybody? I think that's... Yeah. My sister lived next uh, door to a woman who moved in, and she was not interested in spiritual things, and over the course of several years, she came to faith in Christ, and she sat down at my sister's kitchen table one day and said, thank you for persevering. Right. Because we do live in a in a cancel culture where at a certain point do you say, oh, you're killing me right now by being so hostile to me. I think I'm done with you. <laughs> yeah, right. It definitely, <laughs> I think we as Christians are called upon to be the adults in the conversation, right, yeah, and to yeah. have uh, the staying power. Um, I would say the only exception to that is, you know, there are times when we are talking to somebody who has hours to live. So obviously ex- excluding that, uh, I think for the most part, the long game makes more sense. If you think, for example, I, I consider, for example, what would it take for me to become a Muslim? I'm not going to do that in 10 minutes. I'm not going to do that after a 40 minute conversation. Right. That's very so interesting. Asking a person to become, go move from secularity to, to following Jesus. That's a big, that's a big step. You got to give them time to work through that. Yeah. At the end of this hour, if you ask what direction is east, I'm going to be worried. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hypothetical. I know it was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, but I, I do. I, I believe that the the long game is something like what you said. It's so important that we have that we are the adult in the, in the room. Because absolutely, um, I completely agree with that long game perspective. And it, it, we're we're thinking about we're. we're really asking a person to make a complete orientation of the most central part of their life. You know, you're not asking them to get a different hairstyle. Right. (laughs) You're talking about the central core meaning of their life. Okay, that's not a trivial thing. So you got to give people a chance to process that. Some people are ready, and and they'll do it in the short term, but that is the exception. Mm. David, are church gatherings places on a, on a Sunday morning where we should be inviting people of all different walks of faith and life and secularization and atheists into that community? Or is that a place for believers to be to be empowered then to have these conversations? Because I think churches have different views on this. I think so. And uh, I'm, I've seen successful and effective churches, you know, that do both. Um, and as, as long as uh, there is a real emphasis on uh, empowering people to engage in these conversations, you know, I'm okay with a, a church, certainly, that um, engages primarily in the discipleship activity. I will be just honest to say that most churches start out with the idea that, okay, we're going to be involved in training up people and discipleship, and then people can go out and do stuff. And the first half of that happens, and the second half of that doesn't happen. Hmm. And that's a reality. And most churches become increasingly inwardly focused uh, in their activities. So I I think there needs to be some kind of planning from uh, the leadership of a church that that has uh, some kind of activity, programming, whatever, um, that allows people to invite uh, their friends to participate. So I've, I've seen it where the churches say, well, let's do it on a Sunday night. And let's let's have a, a conversation between a Christian and a Muslim, and let's see what they have to say and what their perspectives are, and then all the people in the church can invite their friends to to witness, and hopefully the Christian makes a compelling case for the Christian faith, which is surprisingly good to the secular person who comes, 
And in that way, the church can work together to help people engage in the process of uh, working with and, and witnessing to their to their friends. The, I think a lot of Christians don't witness because they just think it's such a big job. The churches mm. ought to help them with that. Mm. David, because we've been really living in full-time technology culture with uh, COVID and everything else now that that's loosening up, I, I'm pretty sure people are really looking for genuine interactions. And it seems now more than ever that there uh, are are people open to having adult conversations about things that matter and nothing matters more than uh, the hope and faith that we have in Christ. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, the thing is that when people think about conversations with those that they disagree with initially, it sort of spooks people. People are afraid of it. They don't want to do it. There's there's anxiety, and so they kind of like, well, let's not go there. And then if you can develop some skills or have some ground rules, and you can be authentic and maybe take down the boxing gloves a bit and just kind of relax, suspend judgment, listen to the other, and actually get into a real, humane personal conversation, totally the opposite of what our politics today is is (laughs) challenging us to do, (laughs) that at the end of the day, my goodness, people say, that was great. That was so enriching. I enjoyed that. It is actually a very enriching thing to be able to have an honest conversation with a person who has a different point of view. Yeah. Well, David, I know Peter and I will say that very thing to you right now. We enjoyed this so much. So thank Incredible. you for being on the show. And once again, um, you're like a five-egg omelet. You, you know, the omelet comes <laughs> and you go, this is more eggs than I thought. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of bologna in this omelet, so just be careful. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the show. Great to be with you. Yep, Dr. David Clark has been our guest. And Peter, thank you so much once again. It's the great sun, stuff from The Summer him. Sunburn Series continues, and it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Yep. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for uh, spending the time with us. I hope you have a great night as you lay your head on the pillow. Know that God is working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.